You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clubo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Bobo, how you doing today? Pretty good, pretty good. How you doing, Cliff? I am excited. I could barely get any sleep last night. We have fantastic guests for you. You're going to totally dig this one. I mean, you already know who they are, but I cannot wait to announce it because there's a new Bigfoot film on the market. But you know the great thing about it? It's not really a Bigfoot film. This isn't about necessarily about sightings. It doesn't have talking heads like, I saw the thing standing by the tree. It was eight feet tall. It's not anything like that. This is an out-of-the-ordinary Bigfoot film. And I've seen it, and I, I cannot recommend recommend it highly enough. I know you've seen it. The name of the film is Big Fur. It was made by a guy named Dan Wayne. And the center of the film, the subject of the film is a world renowned, like award winning taxidermist named Ken Walker. And we have both of those gentlemen on the show today, Bubs. It is going to be a fantastic episode. Oh yeah. I watched that movie three times now. There's some twists and turns. I don't want to, I have all these questions I want to ask him, but I don't want to give away too much about the plot. Because it's, it's, it takes some, it's almost like uh, the Tiger King, of, should, should be called the Squatch King, because it takes some dramatic turns. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is a fantastic film, and I cannot, I cannot recommend it enough. Everybody in our audience really needs to see this. And you know, I'm not blowing smoke up anybody's skirt or anything. This is a fantastic film because it is out of the ordinary. Um, but you know what? Let, let, enough of us talking. Let's get right down to it. Let's, let's uh, go ahead and introduce our two subjects today, and then they can tell you about the film. They can tell you about their accomplishments, and, and then we have a ton of questions for them. So, uh, Bobo and everybody else who's listening right now, I want you to meet Dan Wayne, the filmmaker, and Ken Walker, the taxidermist. So, Dan and Ken, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond. Hello. Ken, you... you I'm not a, I'm not a hunter. I'm not a taxidermist aficionado. I don't go to the shows. I don't take, I don't read the blogs or the mag. So, but you apparently are um, like the world's best in some, or at least in some years you've been awarded the world's best in taxidermy. Tell us a little bit that, about that. Like, where did you begin and all that sort of stuff? Well, ta- taxidermy is kind of a, uh, it's kind of a cool occupation. You don't really find it. It seems to find you, uh, you know, and I've always been, into anything nature. I mean, when I was a kid, they, they couldn't keep me inside, you know, when I was on the fishing dock, that's where I was from, you know, uh, dusk to dawn. I was out fishing day and night, you know, that's just where I was. And, and so, it, you know, becoming a taxidermist was kind of a natural evolution, uh, to what I do because I was also an artist, you know, a sculpting artist, three-dimensional medium is my thing. And then, of course, you know, I was, uh, I used to follow my, my pops on, on moose hunting trips to feed the family, and I just fell in love with the nature and everything. So it was kind of a natural evolution, you know, it kind of, kind of fell into it. Um, and then over the years, it turned out that, you know, I, I was able to, uh, I was, I was, I was able to actually reach some pinnacles in the taxidermy competition field. And so, yeah, as of, as of now, I've won the world championships, uh, three times, twice in the recreation division and once in life-size mammals. And, and I've won a ton of other stuff too, master of masters, uh, Judge's Choice, Best of Show, uh, Competitor's Choice, Best of Show, and then a lot, you know, the Nationals, I won the Nationals, and just stuff like that. And I travel all around the world. I I went to China, taught them how to do panda bears. Um, So, yeah, it's it's been a a great journey. And then somewhere along the way, I I bumped into 
I bumped into the Sasquatch. Yeah. Now that's where the story kind of takes a turn. Cause I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking, wait a minute, taxidermy, Bigfoot. Don't you need like a dead animal to make a, a, a something? What, why do we have a taxidermist on? Well, uh, Ken actually made a replica of a Sasquatch and that's the basis of the entire film that Dan made. So why don't we throw it to Dan right now and say, Dan, wh- wh- why don't you tell us how you ran across Ken and what was the seed that produced the movie Big Fur? Well, you know, I was wanting to do a movie about taxidermy and um, I had started learning how to do it myself as kind of a hobby, and and I found this forum on the internet, and, and all the best taxidermists in the world were on this forum, and I I pretty quickly got more interested in following along with these really bizarre characters than I was in learning how to do it, and and I thought there's I think there's going to be a really interesting documentary here because to me it was this kind of underappreciated art form, and and that's what I set out to do was you know, show what's involved with taxidermy. And, and so I had a bunch of these guys I was following along, uh, just really interesting characters. And Ken was kind of at the top of that list. And part of the reason was because, you know, he's pretty smart and he's pretty funny. And, you know, some of these guys just take themselves so seriously. And, and Ken, you know, was more humble. He, you know, he's obviously one of the best, but but he just, you know, he had a great sense of humor. And, and interestingly, he's known for these recreations that he does, you know, these, he did an Irish elk and a, and a panda and a saber tooth tiger. And, you know, people talk about these things like, you know, they're, they're really amazing and they are because they are amazing. And so, uh, when it came time to kind of pull the trigger and get started, I really didn't know what the storyline was going to be, but I just kind of wanted to get the ball rolling. And so I, I sent Ken a message and asked him if he'd be interested in being, you know, part of a documentary. And then we talked on the phone and he was pretty into it. And, you know, I knew he had a thing about Bigfoot, but I didn't really know that much about it. And I'd never really thought twice about Bigfoot. But then he told me he was going to build a Bigfoot. And that's when I knew I found the story because there's going to be a middle, you know, beginning, a middle and an end. And I can follow him while he makes this thing and takes it to the world championships. And so that's kind of how the whole seed started. This whole thing about Bigfoot, though, it uh, I really didn't know anything about Bigfoot. So as soon as I hung up from Ken, I started studying and learning about Bigfoot. And, uh, yeah, I didn't really realize there was this international interest you know, not just Bigfoot, but all cryptids. And, and I think that kind of sent me down this kind of path about, you know, mythology and what these things stand for, you know, in a, in a more broad general sense. One of the things I was impressed about when I was watching Big Fur is how much information Ken knew about Sasquatches. I mean, he had Know the Sasquatch by, by Chris Murphy in his hand. He knew about the um, the compliant gate of the Patterson-Gimlin film creature. He knows a lot about Sasquatches. So, so Ken, can you tell us how you started researching Bigfoot in particular? Once, Well, I, I had two people come forward to me that told me about Sasquatch encounters, and these were people that I trust inherently. I, I knew... They weren't lying. Uh, one was a guy I worked with named Wade Pearson, and his grandfather uh, had passed away. And before he did, he gave him his car. But he sat and told him how he was walking out of a logging camp in the middle of the night in British Columbia and, and bumped into a huge Sasquatch. And he literally went to town, got on a train and went home because he couldn't go back to tell the people what he had saw. And then the other guy is uh, Ray Lavor, a, a very famous taxidermist. Uh, he's, he's still alive. He's quite old. But he used to hunt the, the Brazu River. And before it was open, he, he had the, the record Alberta bear, uh, trophy bear, uh, for many years. And he said that he found Sasquatch tracks on a sandbar. And he said they could not have been anything else. 
uh, and the guy knows. So that got me investigating right away because I thought, wait a minute. And so then I started quizzing every, every hunter who came through my shop and man, the stuff that I, I came up with was incredible. I go that the people told me, I didn't realize people I knew had seen them, but they just don't tell anyone. And then, so I just, I just soaked up all the knowledge I could. I, I tried to go to the most credible sources I could, you know, like Jeff Meldrum and, and people who take, uh, uh, you know, a scientific approach to it. And then of course, uh, you know, you got to, you got to sort through a lot of stuff, but you know, and then I started looking for people myself out here. And uh, it just went from there. So, yeah, I soaked up a lot of knowledge on it. What is the story? Was it when you were a kid you saw it or you saw it later? No, um, I saw it when I was I was actually hunting. Uh, if you go west of Edmonton, there's a uh, – when you hit the first main bush country, it's uh, Blue Ridge, White Court. Uh, and I went to Blue Ridge and, I, and crossed the river and then went down this old road we call the Simpson Timber Road. We used to hunt bears there. And it was that, – that country wasn't opened up at all. There was no side roads. And about 20 miles down that road, all of a sudden I yelled bear because the bear ran out of the bush. And, and I realized it's not a bear, it's a man. And this thing cleared the ditch, one jump. And it was up on the road and then it cleared the other ditch. And then it ran up a steep hill without slowing down. And I mean, the thing was running too fast to be human anyways. And I, I was like, who is this guy? Why is he dressed in black fur? He's going to get shot out here, you know? And, uh, it never sat right with me. And the guy with me said, is that a Sasquatch? And I said, no, there's no such thing, man. It had to be a man, you know. Uh, I have since gone back to the area, found the tree structures, and talked to other witnesses. And it's an area south of Kidney Lake, and that's where they are. It's one of the, one of the areas where, they, where there's encounters. What year was that? Uh, oh, man, 30 years ago. So it, it made more sense that, that it was a Sasquatch than it was a person. Much more sense because uh, – uh, everything about the sighting was not within human parameters, but uh, you know, belief is a big thing. It, it forms your opinions. I know people who've seen Sasquatches and still don't believe in them, you know? So there was that kind of hanging in the background. So I drew on that as far as an experience. Another time I was walking through the woods and something hit me with a rock and I thought maybe a squirrel dropped a rock on me. Well, I know better now. Uh, I was in Tom Hill tower country and, and I've got, uh, witnesses from there now too so you know I, I put a lot of of pieces together from my past and then of course uh, I have all the new accounts coming in all the time from from people that come through my shop so I've been able to try kind of weed through everything you know if I get you know similarities similar areas from people who don't know each other and I've been able to get kind of a broad view of of where uh, the Sasquatch are in Alberta about how many reports do you think you've collected, like, since you started collecting these things? Four dozen. Okay, very good. And and even in that small data set so far, you know, 50 or so reports, shall we say, um, patterns are already developing is what I'm hearing from you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but And also, too, like, uh, I sort through them. I really, anything that could possibly give you know give evidence like if somebody says they found tracks and and you know two days ago i mean i'm I'm in my truck and i'm racing you know people say they found bones people have shot and killed them those i try to follow those up uh, as as quickly as i can and i mean you guys all know the sierra kill story uh that was on our taxidermy forum that that came up to be and i was actually the first one to talk to that guy oh you were that was you that was me. I was the guy. Yeah. No way. Yeah, that was me. 
I was on the. I, was, I went up there to find the body with, the, with Meldrum and Derek and them guys. Yeah, because uh, I actually I was the one I called Derek and I said, you know, get in touch with this guy, and uh, and then I never heard anything. So then I ended up calling Tyler Huggins, and uh, I tried to get him on it. I said, you know, there's a possibility that you know I'm two weeks behind the shooting. Uh, you know, I don't care who who proves it. I don't. I don't. I really don't care. I just want somebody to. I have since had a chance to sit down with Justin and, uh, and talk with him. And, and, uh, and I mean, I heard the original report. I, I have no doubt in my mind that it's, it's real. Me too. No doubt. You know, you know, Barcatino filmed, uh, four of them there a couple of years later. Did you know that? Yeah. The thermal ones. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. No, they, and they, they'll be in the area. Like, it's just like the place where, um, uh, they call the Alberta habituation that Dan's not telling you, but I called a Sasquatch in for him. And, uh, right where we were standing is the same place that, uh, the word is that Jeff Meldrum saw one and he did see one as far as I'm concerned. And he saw a really nasty, mean one that nobody should be in there walking around. <laughs> uh, they don't know the backstory. I do. And, uh, you know, they just hide more. They don't tend to change locations. They, They just tend to be more careful if they know people are in there looking for them. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So, Ken, can you tell us more about the Alberta habituation site? Yeah, sure. Um, You know, it's unfortunate that it got to be such a public spectacle because it was never meant to be that. I was... was, uh, showing that uh, and asked to keep it quiet because, of course, the trapper doesn't want his trap line being turned into a circus. Uh, so what had happened is once I realized these these creatures are out there, I started going through all of the people I know in my mind. And there's people, basically, I know people that are so knowledgeable that if there are Sasquatches, these guys would know. So I went to a couple of really good friends of mine and uh, I called him up and I said, look, I'm not crazy. Just listen to what I have to say. But do you have any, any accounts of Sasquatches up in that country where you guys are? And the guy said, you're not going to believe this. I can't believe you're asking me that question. He says, I just had to go with my, my brother and, and pull all his traps. The, he, he says he's being harassed by these things. And, uh, and he's, then he said, yeah, and they built a big nest uh, that they were living in. He's found and he's seen seven of them and uh, just went on and on. And so as soon as he said there was a nest and there was like, and this was already in the winter and there was scat all over the place. He said the thing had crapped about 30 times around the edge of this nest. I said, we need to go collect that. I says, it'll have DNA evidence. And I had a heck of a time getting him to draw us a map, but he finally did. And we went up there and that's when we found the, uh, I went in there and I found out where the area was and we dug up the the nest and uh, I filled up five bags full of frozen scat. I videotaped it. I have the videotape somewhere. But, uh, you know, this, this is how it kind of started. And then I started getting all of the accounts and, and what happened. And then I started exploring the area myself. And uh, there was a, another I – got, I got followed by one when I was in there on the river. Now, there were some hunters that got run out of an area. And on the way out, they told the trapper, don't ever go in there. They wouldn't say why. But they said, just watch those stone piles on the cliffs. And he said, you'll, you, you know. If. So I went in there and I found the stone piles 
And so I went farther down the trail. I looked for some tracks. And when I came back, uh, when I hit the crossroads, something was had been standing there that stunk so bad that I could hardly breathe. And it was it smelled like rotten grass uh, in a bag in the in the hundred degree weather, mixed with bo with vomit. I mean, it was just a it was just an awful offensive smell. And then the then the breeze just took the smell away, and I realized whatever I smelt was standing right here. And then that's when all the hair started going up on my arms, on my back, on my neck. And I realized there was something watching me and real close. I've never felt like that. And uh, so I brought another, I, I there was another guy that I had been talking to and he wanted to go in really badly with me. So I, I called up the trapper and they said, look, if you trust this guy, you know, go ahead. So I went in there, I brought the guy and of course all the tree structures, the guy went kind of crazy, like there's so much stuff there to look at. And, uh, and then uh, down the road, I guess he, a lot of people get delusions of grandeur. They think that they're going to be, I don't know, Neil Armstrong walking on the moon because of something that they found, you know, and then they want it all to themselves. And so he started going to other investigators uh, and trying to bring them into the area, which I strongly advised him against. And so th that, that area ended up becoming known, whether through blogs, uh, the very first, uh, Survivor Man Bigfoot was filmed there. And of course, uh, another gentleman went in there and brought in Dr. Meldrum and Dr. Bindernagel. And yeah, the place turned into just exactly what the trapper didn't want. It turned into a circus. Now, that's just one spot. Luckily, I didn't show the guy the other spots because there's, there's one spot in particular where if, if you go in there, there's bone piles where they've been eating. There's beds. There's shelters. Uh, they're literally there all the time. And uh, I just found out two weeks ago that forestry found that spot too, and they clear cut it. So that was kind of a loss, really. But but there's still all there's there's area there was another area there given to the natives, uh, and uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, Sasquatch. They, they winter in there, uh, so that that won't be developed. So there's still quite a bit of country out there. I know where they are, but the the place they call the Alberta habituation it tends, turns into a bit of a circus sometimes with people going in there, you know. Yeah, Meldrum told me about that, and uh, he told me about you. He didn't say your name, but I was like, man, that guy had the spot. He got screwed because I've had the same thing happen. Like, take one or two people there, and then they tell one or two people, and it's, you know, exponential, and all of a sudden it's, it's on the Internet, and people are going to your spot, and then it's ruined. Yeah, well, uh, it was kind of fun because I found out that no, no matter how many people go in there, they're still there, and it, they seem to like to watch who comes and goes. You know, if I take my friends in there now, because it's not a big deal anymore, the trapper has actually sold that his part of the trap line in there. He still goes in that country, but, uh, you know, he's not involved anymore with the actual trap line. So it's, it's loosened up a little bit. But, I mean, I took Dan in there, uh, and we, they, they, what happens is they all seem to gather in there just before they go up in the mountains for the winter. You know, there seems to be a, a gathering place, and that's why those big structures are there. This is my theory, because uh, the trapper told me they all show up around October, and they leave as soon as the snow hits in November. And so Dan and I were up there at the beginning of November, and so I, I told Dan, I said, you know, we were drinking wine by the fire right, right at the, the berm there where, where Dr. Meldrum saw the one. And I says, if I make a quick call, I says likely one will come and check us out. You got to do a quick call because you don't want 
want him to hear it twice. If he hears it twice, he knows you're fake, right? So I gave a, one of those Wooloop calls, and uh, and I told Dan, I said, you know, his dog didn't even raise its head. His dog Betty was curled up there, and I said, uh, does your dog ever shake and pee itself and go crazy? He said, no. And I said, well, you, I don't have mystical, magical powers over your dog, right? I said, okay, just wait. About 10 minutes later, that dog, and it, and it was fixed on that ridge down uh, downwind, looking right at that. And it was trying to bark, and it was just shaking. And I said, there's one on the ridge right now. He's crept up there, and he's having a look at us, and now he's going to leave because he's busted, and he don't like it. <laughs> and within about five, minute, five ten minutes, uh, Betty had calmed down, and uh, but it was there. You know, they sneak in to have a look at you. Now, is that the uh, general technique that you choose to use when you're doing field work? As you go, just be a human for a little while, make a couple noises that they might be interested in, just and wait. Yeah, what, when I do the calls, like a lot of times, like when I took some girls, uh, girl taxidermists, uh, and I had a girl from London with me, and and uh, Alice Markham from uh, Hollywood, and a few other people. Uh, I just told them just to, you know, just listen real carefully. And, uh, so I just did a quick call and right away you heard a branch break. I very rarely hear a tree knock in there. Very rarely, if ever, they really like to whistle. You'll be walking along and all of a sudden, you know, you'll hear them. And I've been able to whistle back and have them answer me. So Dan, you were at this place and you got to hear all this for yourself. What was your take on it? Well, you know, it's pretty weird. I mean, it was dark, you know, <laughs> my dog certainly freaked out. Uh, you know, I, I can't say I'm a hundred percent convinced there was a Sasquatch there, but something certainly freaked out my dog. Um, and, and I spent more time in, in that area, uh, you know, with Ken, but also without Ken, I camped there for a couple weeks and, and it was, I was surprised at just how remote that area really is. You know, there's, there's nobody there except the occasional logging truck or a oil and gas truck. Uh, but you know, I was in there for a couple of days without seeing a single soul. And then another time Ken and I went with, uh, with Dawn, one of the taxidermists that's in big fur to go look at a siding that she had, which isn't very far from there. I mean, by Canadian standards, it's just kind of like <laughs> down the road. And, uh, you know, we took four wheelers in there and yeah, that's a big, vast wilderness. It, it certainly wouldn't be hard for an intelligent animal to avoid humans back in there. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, I'll tell you something really cool. The trapper, like these trappers, they see things that we don't, you, you know, when we were digging up the, the nest for, for the scat, the, the trapper said, I got, he goes, take a look at this. Look at this. And I, I looked up and, you know, the nests are always under a big tree. And this was under a big tree with big, big branches. And right about eye level, I'm about 5'11". And right about my eye level were two branches about four feet apart. You know, they, they, they went into a, like a Y. They both came out at an angle, 45 degree angle from each other. There was two spots about 11 inches wide wore into the branches where something when it stood up always grabbed in the same place like hand grips like he rocked back and forth but you know he spent a lot of time in that that nest and when he stood up he grabbed the branches in the same place and he actually wore the the bark down and about two 11 inch wide hand grips i would have never saw that but the trappers they see everything and he says whatever was standing here always grabbed these branches in the same place like out of out of habit and 
and its hand its hand grips were about eye level with the five five eleven guy. So uh, that was really interesting. And uh, the other thing that happened is there was a uh, there had been a trap set near that bed for uh, uh, whatever reason. What what happens is is Everything from that bed inwards, from that trap line, the traps were robbed. Like they were martin boxes. And what they did is they uh, they have a, a, a conibear trap for a, for a pine martin. And there's one kind of bait that the pine martins touch and, and nothing else does. So you keep the other animals out. And it's called uh, martin magic. It's, it's basically rendered fish oil and skunk oil. And it's cubes of beaver meat soaked in, in skunk oil and, and uh, rotten fish oil. And... You know, it's unpalatable for most animals, but the martens go into the traps. Well, uh, the trapper told me, he says, that the Sasquatches cannot resist it. He says they'll chew the bark off the tree where he smears it on, and he says they take every piece of bait out of his traps. So they would take the trap out of the box and leave it hanging, still set. They would reach up, they would take the meat out, and he says, and every single time it did that, it put three rocks on top of the martin box. And he thought somebody was jacking with him. Now... These guys have grizzly bears destroying sets all the time and, and grizzly bears are protected and you're not allowed to harm them or haze them or anything like that. But every now and then a 330 conibear gets set, you know, and whatever was stealing from these traps got caught in this 330 conibear. Now, if you're a 330 conibear is a, is a body grip trap. It's if it gets on a bear or something like that, you know, something really strong, they'll get it off. But it, it kind of spooks them. But what ended up happening was whatever would got, got its foot stuck in this trap pulled the hardened steel apart within 30 feet which i've talked to people and they've told me that's impossible i mean if you tied it between two tractors you could do it but whatever pulled this trap apart had to have had the strength of two tractors you know and so uh when the snow finally melted i went out there got on my hands and knees and i collected a whole bag of hair from where this happened including some with skin attached i mailed that to uh, john bindernagel it got lost. It vanished. There's no tra- trace of it. Nobody can find it. It's gone. Because he passed away. Is that what happened? Well, yeah. And, and uh, Tyler was the guy who was chasing after it. And he said that he was a little confused about things bef- around the end. But uh, apparently he was supposed to have sent it to somebody who was looking for samples to test. Yeah. And then uh, and basically Tyler knows I told I sent Tyler after because once I once it left my house, as far as I'm concerned, it was gone. I even have, I have a photograph of it and it was a lot. And, and I remember John called me and says, that's an awful lot of hair. And I said, yeah, but it was an unusual circumstance. And I told him what happened. Yeah. And that was that. And then it was, you know, so I'm, I'm pretty careful with anything I, can, I call evidence nowadays. Yeah, never give away the whole. Never ever give away the whole sample of anything. Always keep some. Well, and that's there. And there's, there's a trick. There's a, uh, a part to that story because somebody or something came back after the snow melted and t- carried away that entire nest, like and and sanitized the whole area, like just made it look like there was nothing there. And I assumed that the trapper was mad at me because this guy's, you know, he, if he gets mad at you, you're in trouble. And I thought maybe he was mad at me and he moved it because I, I don't know any creature other than people that will clean up after themselves. I've, I've since gotten a lot of accounts of Sasquatch actually doing that, but this thing came back It knew that we had been messing with the, the site and it sanitized, it cleaned it up. And I thought that maybe there was a chance that the, the trapper was mad at me and, and planted the hair there. 
This is why I didn't trust the sample 100% at the time. Uh, I have since talked to the trapper because he's the only one who could have gone back there. Nobody else knew where it was. And he said, I told you, I'm never going back there again, you know, for his reasons. And uh, so it, it was then I looked up and I found accounts of people seeing Sasquatches leave nests and then coming back and finding the area had been cleaned up. You know, that was before I realized they were a hominid. I thought, you know, at that point it was early. I thought they just might be some big bumbling lumbering ape out in the woods which we all know they're not and uh so so i didn't i didn't keep half the sample i just sent it all and i said if it's i and i told i told john i said if it turns out to be you know three different types of animals just disregard it because i told him that i didn't trust the sample 100 percent. but in hindsight now and having talked to the trapper and knowing the the story a little better i gave away something i i, I never should have you know, I have a question for uh, Dan. When did you start filming this? Because I'm trying to, uh, like, talking to Bindernagel and some of these events I'm aware of, I'm trying to put it in a timeline. When when exactly were you filming? Did you start, like, 2014? I first went up to Alberta in 2013, but I think it was it was about a year later that I went to that habituation area uh, for the first time. And it really kind of changed the course of the movie. Right. So, um, Ken, when you, in the movie you say you found some of the, like DNA evidence, is that what you're referring to? The stuff that disappeared with Bindernoggle? No, I actually the the scat. I had it tested. Um, now they they've been counting grizzly bears in Alberta, and the labs here for the Fish and Wildlife uh, are are experts at at uh, pulling DNA out of out of animal scat, and that's how they were actually counting the grizzly bears by doing genetic profiles on them. You know, they could say, "Oh, okay, this was this one. He was over here too." They used dogs to collect this scat, and I knew that they had this lab set up to pull DNA out of scat, so I had five bags of it. So I happened to be doing work for uh, some taxidermy work for the the head of Foothills Enforcement uh, at the time. And he was a, a really good guy and he knew I wasn't, you know, he, he didn't think I was crazy, but I sat in his office and I told him, I said, look, these things are real. And, and, uh, I have potentially have DNA evidence of them. And so I brought in a frozen bag of scat and I said, if you get you guys to test this, because I collected it from a, uh, uh, a nest site, you know, it isn't like, I mean, it looks like, it looks like black bear or human crap, you know, uh, and if I just found it anywhere, I wouldn't, I wouldn't collect it. But the fact that it was 30 piles of it around a Sasquatch nest, I figured, well, I probably got a good chance. You know, I don't think it. So, uh, so anyways, they, he said, well, we'll tell you what this is. He says, we run it through GenBank and, and it tells us every animal in the world. He says, so if this is chimpanzee, he said, we'll know. And I said, dude, I said, if it's chimpanzee, I says, make sure you charge me with mischief. <laughs> you know, and I said, I said, I'm telling you right now. This, this is uh, this is the real deal, and so, anyways, I gave it to him, and I was excited. You know, I kept bugging him, like, "Did you test it?" And then finally, I just gave up bugging him. And he said they don't want to test it, and they think you're crazy. And I said, "Yeah, well, fine, just test it then. If I'm crazy, I'm crazy. Test it." But then I bumped into him about a year later, and I said, "Did they ever test that?" And he looked at me, and said, "Yeah, we did." And I said, uh, "Oh, and?" He said, "Well, it came back inconclusive." And I, I don't know anything about DNA, so I just assumed they couldn't find DNA. And I said, oh, I was hoping you'd find DNA in it. And he said, no, that's not what I said. He said, uh, it didn't, it, it was inconclusive when we ran it through GenBank. It didn't match anything. He said, this is, the, this is actually 
the result you wanted. And I said, really? And I said, so you guys can't tell what it is? He goes, well, unless we sequence it. Uh, and he goes, that's expensive. He said, they're not going to do it. He said, but they were interested to know the story and where you found it and the, the circumstances. And I said, are they willing to put in writing that it could be what I said it is? He said, no, they will never do that. I said, well, call me when they're ready to do that. Uh, and I could just tell by his reaction I was, and everything else is that uh, I think they, you know, I, I realized, wait a minute, these guys know what this thing is. Um, now, they, now they know that I'm onto it. And it kind of spooked me a little bit. I, I kind of wished I hadn't sent it in. I wish I'd sent it to somebody else. And, uh, you know, but he's retired now. And he came into my shop here last year or the year before. And he said, he smiled at me. And he said, I watch the news for you every day. <laughs> and I thought, that's, that's a pretty good, uh, that's, a, that, that's pretty good coming from him. So I think through this whole investigation, he himself may have learned something. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Have you talked to them that claim they killed one? Yeah. What's the most the one you believe the most that made the most sense to you that you heard someone say they killed one? And why didn't they bring a body part back? Because I get asked that all the time. There was a legendary hunter in Alberta. And he uh, he used to uh, hunt sheep, and unfortunately he passed away a few years, few years ago of, of cancer, before I had a chance to talk to him about this subject. But it was his brother that was out, uh, he was either berry picking or cone picking. Uh, now, they pick up pine cones because they take them to the uh, forestry, and then they, they use them for planting seedlings, and then they, you know tree planters come and put them back. And so they'll go out there and they get paid for these. Or they, or they pick berries. But there's one spot... Uh, it ties into this same area, but it's farther north, uh, where nobody goes in there. It's just too spooky. And that's where they were. And uh, there, he turned around, and there was a Sasquatch standing with the kids. His kids? or His kids, yeah. So he, uh, he had, like, the, everybody has a gun for, for bear protection. And so what he did is he shot the Sasquatch. And it screamed and freaked out and ran away. So anyways, uh, he went and got his, his cousin or, or his brother, who was a legendary tracker, and they tracked this thing, and, and I know his son real well, and his son said they couldn't find it. Well, then I talked to the trapper later, and the trapper knew this guy really well, and he looked at me and he said, he said, did they tell you that he didn't find it? And I thought, oh, wait, wait a minute, you know. And uh, he said, no, he said, that isn't the truth. And I said, you don't even have to tell me what happened. I says, I I know what happened. I said, they, uh, they got themselves into some trouble. And I guess this thing, they went down a blind canyon. And when they got into where there, uh, there was a bunch of them waiting for him. And he said they almost didn't make it out. But he, uh, he just said that, yeah, they got, they got ambushed. But, and the other, the other uh, story was, uh, or anecdote, was there's a guy who lives right in town here. And I've known him since for years. He's roughly the same age as me. And he was out hunting with his uncle uh, in a place uh, north of a place called Fawcett Lake by the by Lesser Slave Lake, and that's also an area of activity. Actually, I have a fish and wildlife officer that relates accounts from there to me from the native community. But he said that he found these tracks, and he tried to tell his uncle that he found these giant people tracks, you know. And his uncle laughed at him. And so the next day, he went to they went by a berry patch, and there was this what he called thought was a giant black bear on the ground eating berries. 
And so he shot it with a, an, an old uh, 308 Norma Magnum. And he says, this thing jumped up to its feet. He said, about nine feet tall, he says, and turned and looked at him, put his hands over the exit wound and screamed at him and ran away. So he went and got his uncle. And his uncle took a look at the tracks, the blood, grabbed the kid, threw him in the truck, never even picked up his camp, just drove out, never said a word to him, just drove out. And that was that. And so this guy is, you know, he always told me that, oh, I, if I would have followed it, I would have found it. And I told him, I says, if, if you'd have followed it, they probably wouldn't have found you, for one thing. And, uh, and he actually did see another one on the, on the what a place we call the Big Stone Flats. And uh, he took a shot at some, some elk and he emptied his gun. And he said after his gun was empty and he started to reload it, he said the Sasquatch broke cover and ran across the clearing. And he said that thing was smart enough to know his gun was empty. <laughs> <laughs> but when you said you found bone piles, like where they've been eating meat, when I found uh, bone piles before, they were in, they separated, like all the jaw bones were in one pile, all the rib bones were in another, like femurs in another pile. Did you ever find anything like that? Uh, well, I, I never got a chance to go in there. I was actually, I've been working on the trapper to take me in there, and he was supposed to take me in there this year. And uh, I just got word that they, they must have found out they were in there, and they clear-cut that area. And they'll do that. If, if, if you uh, report a sighting in an area, uh, that, that area a lot of times will be clear-cut within a few weeks. We ran into that down here. A woman filmed one in Roseburg um, in May of 2019, and uh, she had nine minutes of footage of this thing, you know. And, um, and a, another gentleman who knows her, who uh, actually put me in contact with her because she, he's kind of a Bigfooter, um, he, for some reason, went and told the, um, the Forest Service. And when they went back to the spot, the entire area had been mowed down with brush hogs. So, and, yeah, if you, get, if you have a, you know, God, I, I always think to myself, like, man, if I had this, this pool on the river that I pulled salmon out of all the time, I wouldn't tell anybody about it. What are people thinking? That's what us hunters, we all know that about our hunting spots. We learned that a long time ago, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Hey, Ken, I got a couple part question for you. From the Gigantopithecus jawbones and teeth, how much would you be able to recreate from that? Like, would you be able to go off of that, like saying, like, you know, they have determined this thing could probably be bipedal because of the, the spread of the jawbone and the way the molars are. How much could you recreate from a, a Gigantopithecus? What we found a Gigantopithecus teeth and jaw, how much, could, how much could you recreate from that, do you think? Well, I actually actually uh, looked at that jawbone, and then all you have to do is just uh, – I have a gorilla skull here, and they're more quadrupedal, obviously. And then, of course, you have the, uh, the uh, human, which is, is bipedal. And if you look at the way the head sits on the neck, in order for the esophagus to curl down uh, properly, the jawbone has to be shallow in the front. It's straight up and down on a human. It, come, it tapers back. Uh, quite a ways on the uh, gorilla because the head comes straight out. Okay, mm-hmm. Gigantopithecus, it's right in the middle. So basically, what you have is you probably have the same thing as a Sasquatch, a bipedal animal that can be quadrupedal sometimes, or at least at least uh, has a lower slung head when it does walk. Just like you know, has that that forward uh, that forward lean, that kind of slouch. Uh, so basically, if you look at, you know, at, at the depth of the jawbone right in the very front on the human, the gorilla, and then Gigantopithecus is right in the middle. So it obviously held its head at a higher angle than a gorilla, but lower angle than a human. And 
and bones tell you a lot, like they, like a lot. Like I have uh, skulls from, you know, giant beavers, short-faced bears, saber-toothed cats. And it's amazing what you can figure out from just from looking at those skulls it's, it's, it, and bones. It's just amazing. Hey, Dan, I mean, you're obviously somewhat intelligent. You made a great movie, but how could you be not convinced that squatches are real after all this? <laughs> so you mean I'm only fully intelligent if I believe they're real? <laughs> no, you don't have to believe you got to got to know. <laughs> you know, I I love the whole idea of it, and it it sure would be cool. I mean, if they if we if they were you know discovered you know in a way that that we could all accept it, like you know a type specimen. I mean, how much you know we would learn so much from them. Oh God, yeah. It's uh, it's hard for me to believe that so so many of the sightings are are real. You know, I mean, I can I can believe that there's a certain number out there, but as you guys know, when you hang out with some squatchers, everything becomes Sasquatch. Oh God, yeah, we don't throw that out the window. Just go. With, yeah, all you need to do is take the five best ones, the five most convincing you talk to them. And if one of those five is real, then it's real. Right. Right. But then, you know, there's, there's just certain things that I, you know, I struggle with, like how many do there have to be to actually have enough genetic diversity that there could be, you know, a healthy population. 300 is what it is in cheetahs. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And there's certainly way more Sasquatches than 300. Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that's when I understand, at least, like with the big mammals, they start running into genetic difficulties when the population drops about that number. Yeah. You know, so if you can expand it to about 500, you're still looking at a good Sasquatch population, even in the Pacific Northwest, I think. Yeah, and, you know, that I don't think that's beyond the realm of possibility by any means. Um, and I don't buy most of the arguments that people have, you know, when they try to say that they don't exist. Like, well, why haven't we found a body? You know, that kind of thing doesn't that doesn't mean anything to me. So, um, you know, it is a, it's a very compelling thing. You know, when I'm back here at home and I'm, you know, doing my thing, I don't think that much about Bigfoot that I go back up to Canada and visit Ken and, you know, within a, you know, just a few hours of hearing him talk about it, you know, I always start to change my tune a little bit. He's very compelling and, and, uh, he's got, you know, really good, you know, intelligent arguments about it. So, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm I'm a hundred percent believer, but I'm I'm close. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> hey Ken, I was wondering when I was watching the movie, which again I want to recommend highly. You were doing measurements to the recreate Patty, the Patterson Gibbon film subject, and there's some discrepancy on on measurements. You know, according to what lens was used. So how did you determine the sizes? Well. I, I had, of course, the Know the Sasquatch book, and John Green's uh, template is in there. And uh, I'm not one to trust anything I don't research or, or verify myself. So what I did is in one of the frames, uh, you can see the bottom of Patty's foot. So what I did is I measured, I took that measurement, and I, I know that you can buy the cast of the foot at just under 15 inches. And then basically I, I used that as a measuring tool. Uh, and I extrapolated uh, the, the length from the, the shin to the femur, uh, the, the hip joint to the shoulder joint, across the shoulder joints, and everything just by using that 15-inch uh, or just under 15-inch uh, yard uh, foot as a ruler. And uh, my, my measurements came up exactly. 
the same as John Green's chart that was done on the site. And so I, I basically, I went off of John Green's chart in Know the Sasquatch and, uh, because I, I verified it with the length of the foot and then my own measurement chart. So you came out to like six nine to seven two something like that. Yeah, just under, just around seven foot mark, maybe just a little under, and uh, the distance between the uh, well, the, the the rump was twenty eight inches wide. Now this is where I tell everybody uh, how you can tell it's outside of human parameters is if the 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 hips are twenty eight inches wide, those arms hung straight down. Now, if they hung straight down, they had to set, uh, hang straight down from the center of the uh, shoulder joint, which means the shoulder joint has to come out about you know three or four inches on each side to be to get the center. So basically, by the time you're done, you're looking at 36 inches from around 36 inches from the center of one shoulder joint to the other one for the arms to hang straight down. So I told anybody, I says, grab your measuring tape, go into any gym, and try and find the biggest guy in there and see if the center of his shoulder joints are th- three feet apart. He says, you ain't going to find it. You know, that's, that's incredibly big. See, every, everything that I do is, is uh, based on pivot points, okay, where, the, where the, uh, the joint is. So, and there were some really strange things, like the shin is shorter than the femur, which is ape. It's not, it's not a, a, a human uh, parameter. It's, it's ape. And the foot is longer, longer than a human. So that means that when they, if they're going to be using the compliant gait, when they have to step forward, that puts their, in order for their foot to clear the ground, because their shin is shorter and their foot is longer, it puts their shin bone parallel to the ground. So when it draws that leg forward, that shin is parallel to the ground, which people don't walk like that at all. They have a far sharper angle and a heel strike. And so because I was trying to wrap my head around why is that shin parallel to the ground? And that was why. Um, the arms were obviously longer, but the joints were in the right place. Like you, you always have, uh, because of physics on arms, you have the same length from your forearm to your upper arm before you hit the wrist. And everything was right. Like there's no arm extensions or everything, but like all of the, and, and I think uh, Bill Munz really was able to show that too in, in his uh analysis of the of the tape you know if the, if the shoulders line up the hips don't line up with a human if the hips line up the shoulders don't line up with a human if the feet line up then the, nothing else lines up and and that was actually what i had found too just in using that uh, that foot measurement as as a as a ruler you know the, i found the same thing so that's how i got my that's how i got my uh uh measurements for for the model i made but i, I found that i could uh, double check them onto uh, john green's chart and it, that i found it was the same what would you guess for the weight i think that sasquatch are a lot heavier than people think they are and i talked to actually adrian erickson was the guy i talked to about this and because he's a hunter you know and, and you know as hunters we like when we shoot something we want to know what it weighs okay you take a like a big a big grizzly bear is going to weigh eight nine hundred pounds okay their their limb, uh, their limb limbs are a fraction of the size of a sasquatch, and that's where you know it's it's your it's your muscle and bone that that adds up the weight. And of course, they have an omnivore stomach. They like they have a lot of of cavernous area in the center of a grizzly bear that the sasquatch doesn't have the same. It, it's got a lot more muscle mass. So where you have a grizzly bear that would would weigh let's say weigh nine hundred pounds, a sasquatch that was of the same size would probably weigh upwards of 1200 pounds you know the the model really is beautiful 
um, just a tremendous piece of art is what it is. I'm lucky enough to have had it in the museum here and done a little photo shoot with our, our Bigfoot model that we have in the shop. Um, uh, which is also very realistic, but done in an entirely different way. It was really cool, actually. It's really exciting. And I'm very, very thankful to Dan to bring it by. Were sparks flying when, when Murphy met Patty? Oh, definitely. There was definitely <laughs> chemistry in the air. <laughs> <laughs> I got teary-eyed. Oh, I, I was just saying, did you see the, the model before I put the skin on it when it was finished? Like the, the sculpture of, of Patty before? Like, like uh, I look at, when I look back at the film and the photographs, I, I really consider I ruined her by putting that hide on. <laughs> because if I could have just put a little more thought and get the, a little better hide on there, I think she'd have been a lot better. Because the, the model really was, that's underneath, was really good. I think that a lot of that hair muted it. That's kind of an, uh, that was kind of my, what I was going to go for for my next question here is that because at the end of the day, your model is a piece of art. And I know how artists are. I mean, I, I'm a musician myself. My wife is an artist. They're never satisfied with what they do, ever. Um, but now looking back after a few years have passed and you've created this amazing piece of art, what would you go back and tweak for the next model? Well, I would, I would put a lot more uh, time into the, the head, the feet, and the hands. And uh, I would I would pay a lot closer attention to the hair patterns and the hair length. Uh, that's what I would do. Mm, the patterns. That's interesting. That's a, that's a subtlety that someone like a taxidermist would have to pay attention to. That a lay person like myself would never even think of. Yeah. Well, the patterns. The patterns on the. If you even look. If you look at the Patterson Gimlin film, uh, the patterns. The hair patterns are, are human. Uh, you know, if you see a guy with a hairy back, you know how the hair kind of comes up and then falls to the sides. You know, it, it kind of goes up in like a fountain. Well, it does the same thing. It does the same thing on her. It's like the and that's those are biological hair patterns that you can't fake with a dead cowhide. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things in that uh, in that film that that make it real to me that a lot of people haven't even analyzed yet. You know, I can just tell. Uh, one of the main things that, that convinced me it was real was I could tell how heavy it was by when it was walking. You can see the weight. Uh, because what it does is by swinging its arms, it actually uses uh, weight momentum to carry itself forward. Uh, and, and unless you know anything about this, like you can see it, it's almost like a pendulum. You know how a pendulum or a gyroscope does that? You know, it's, it, it moves in that manner. It's, it's, uh, it's completely natural and flowing. And you can see that it's got momentum and it uses the momentum to save energy. Fascinating. Now, now, Dan, the film is out now. Is am I correct? It sure is. It was released last week, and uh, it's available to stream on demand on just about any platform where you can rent or or buy a movie, like iTunes and Amazon and Google Play and Fandango and Xbox and on and on. And I cannot recommend enough that everybody should see this movie. It is fascinating. It is very, very much to do with Sasquatches, but not as a centerpiece. It's more about the art form that recreated a Sasquatch. And you can't recreate a, a 3D, vivid, realistic model of a Sasquatch without going pretty deep into the anatomy and other, and other features. It is just a fantastic movie. And it's a lot of fun. I laughed out loud. and yeah, I laughed, I cried. It became a part of me. You know, it was amazing. <laughs> And you get to see some sweet 90s Canadian mullets that Ken's sporting. Yeah, holy <laughs> crap, Ken, you rocked it. <laughs> Thank you very much. If you go to the bigfurmovie.com website, 
there's links to purchase and the, all the social media links are on there too. And, and you could read a little bit about the movie and watch a trailer. So Dan and Ken, I cannot thank you enough for coming on and sharing your expertise, Ken, and a little bit about the film that's just come out, Dan. It is fantastic. And I cannot recommend it enough. I think all of our listeners should check this out, but uh, thank you very much for taking time out and sharing uh, just about all, everything you guys have been doing with us today. Well, thanks for having us. That was fun been a pleasure to be on here and, and uh, I hope to get a chance to meet you guys in person too. <laughs> hey, well, thank you very much, man. It was what a, what a, what a great conversation. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Thanks. All right, Bobes. There's another one. What a great conversation that was just a fantastic episode. Yeah, it was. I mean, if you're looking for like some squatch slasher flick or horror movie, this isn't it. But if you want a great documentary and you know me, I, all I watch is documentaries. I watch you know, several dozen every, I mean, I must watch 50 a year, 60 a year, and this was really good. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I get my wife sat down with me. She loved it because she's an artist and was so fascinated with the way he puts these things together. She sculpts, she paints, she does all these things, and she was intrigued the entire way. It's just a great film that I think has a wide appeal as well. All right, Cliff, thanks for getting Ken and Dan on here. Those guys were awesome. That was a great movie. I'm glad I got to watch it. I recommend it to everyone out there to check out Big Fur. And so until next time, thanks for listening. Hit like, hit share. If you uh, enjoy the show, tell your friends. If you don't like the show, tell your enemies. And until next week, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 